Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the last and fourth episode of a short series about digital health in Africa. This time, I spoke to Sharan Amod, CEO and founder of South Africa's largest and fastest growing online healthcare booking platform, Recomed. South Africa is a restless country with race and ethnicity still causing a lot of tension in the society. On the healthcare side, there are only 0.9 doctors per thousand people in the country. Out of 59 million people, 9 million people access healthcare through private providers and the rest stay in the public system. Soon, however, the system might change with the introduction of national health insurance, as you will hear from Sharan Amod. Sharan is a serial entrepreneur who in the past founded Personara, the first company in the world to join social media content from Facebook with personalized publishing. The company also became a photo software reseller partner of Xerox Corporation and was sold in 2014. In this discussion, Sharan talks about his transition into healthcare, shares his views on the development of healthcare in the country, and plans for Recomet, which enables faster access to doctors and allows patients to leave only positive recommendations about providers on the platform. Negative reviews are sent to providers privately. Over 100,000 patients and 1,500 providers connect with each other every month via Recomed. Listen further to hear more or go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to find the recap of the discussion. I added the link to the show notes. Now to South Africa. Sharan, what's it like to live in, in South Africa? South Africa as a country has been in the media in autumn this year a lot because of violence against women, because of violence against immigrants. So according to police statistics, every three hours women get killed and there's been a lot of a negative attitude towards foreigners that are trying to do business in South Africa. But it's not even foreigners. It can be people that just moved there ages ago, you know, but um, there's quite a lot of tension in the nation. So I'm wondering, what's your perspective on how would you describe the country and how it is to live there? It's very interesting for someone of Indian heritage to assess their, their situation in South Africa. So my family has been here for a long time. My mother's family, who are from South India originally, have been in the country for well over a hundred years, since the 19th century. My father's family has been since the early 20th century. So we've been in South Africa for several generations. You know, I only speak English. I, I can't speak any native Indian vernacular languages. So I'm a South African a person, as you can imagine. But what's interesting for our journey as a group is that we, we grew up in this extremely multiracial society. But in the past, under apartheid, the Indians were kind of placed in the middle. And, and there was this horrible saying of, they were never quite white enough to be favored by the system. Now, under the new South Africa, post-Nelson Mandela and independence, uh, with affirmative action, while Indians, again, are, are in the middle, and there's pros and cons on both sides, the Indians are, are not black enough, uh, as they say. So neither white nor black. And it, uh, but, uh, but 
distinctly South African and been here for, for a very long time. So it's an interesting place as an observer to the society. So that's what makes it quite interesting for me. I, I would say that it's a very dynamic situation. I think that South Africa has the potential to improve massively, and we've shown that in the past. But as in a society that, that has these different tensions, we need to be very careful to not fall prey to the politics of victimization and the politics of creating enemies out of people who are not like you. And I think that's something where our politicians are finally moving away from, but for a long time, they set the wrong tone for the country and those, those parties still exist. That's my one concern, particularly in a, in a population that has a lot of tension. You know, where does all this tension come from? Well, perhaps it's partially from history and perhaps it's partially from, from the failure of government to improve the quality of life for the average citizen over the last uh, 15 years. And that's also something that's, that's very concerning. I don't think it's very helpful. What, what bothered me when there were some recent xenophobic attacks is that some of our top politicians said that the problem is not xenophobia. The problem is these people are poor and they're, they're, it's economics. And I'm not so sure that that's helpful. I think that national level conversation and local level conversation is super important to address these issues. So denial is not the answer. And I will say that having lived in various cities around the world, our society has challenges. It has immense potential, but it has challenges. And I think that these challenges are real and I don't think they're, they're overblown. I think that, you know, it's a society of haves and have nots. And it's well reported that South Africa is, is the most unequal society in the world in the terms of the difference between the rich and the poor. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I believe in the potential of the country and I believe in the spirit of the people to, to come together and get it done. So if you had to ask me which direction do you think it's heading in, I think we're headed in a, a positive direction. But I, I do hope that our leadership plays a positive and productive role in that. And, and hopefully I can be part of that as well. Africa is a very diverse continent with 54 countries. And healthcare-wise, the common problems are communicable diseases. Then there's serious workforce shortages all over the continent. And that's significantly more problematic than, for example, uh, in any other continent. So in Europe, the average of physicians per 1,000 people is three to four, whereas African countries have, for example, Kenya and Ghana have 0.2 doctors per 1,000 people, Nigeria 0.4, South Africa has 0.9. So I imagine it's very difficult for patients to reach the doctors and for the doctors to actually help patients because there are just so many of them. Given that your parents are both doctors, uh, can you perhaps share a little bit of a reflection on the changes that perhaps they've been noticing in healthcare in South Africa in the last 10, 20 years? Yes, I think what we find is that in the private sector, you can pay and receive care. And you have this huge disparity between the private sector and the public sector. So if we take South Africa, for example... There's 59 million people or approximately in the country, of which just under 9 million have access to private health care. So that means there's more than 50 million who don't have access to private health care. So though I believe that those 9 million, if you pay, can get access reasonably quickly, although specialists, there's still some incredibly long waiting lists for certain kinds of treatments with certain kinds of specialists, and that's very common. They're in very, very high demand. But in the public sector, things are a lot worse. 
So what we're seeing is that the quality of care might be poor, but a lot of that is linked to the lack of resources and the delays associated. I would say the quality of doctors in the public sector are excellent and, and often just as good as private sector. It's really a, a resource and capacity issue that we face in the system. So what's happened over time is that the government is trying to figure out ways to improve the quality of care and the resources available for the public sector you know, in various different ways. So historically, my father was a general practitioner. He had a business that would dispense medication in addition to being able to see patients. And I remember as a child, there was a very big change in his business where the government came up with a new set of laws which fixed the prices that pharmacies and doctors who dispensed were allowed to charge for pharmaceuticals. So that meant the government, that was a massive change where the government controlled prices for drugs in the country. Now, this had the impact of lowering the price for uh, a lot of people and because um, it created fixed margins. But what it also had the impact of doing is is hurting the business of a lot of pharmacists and a lot of doctors who dispense. So that was something that, that helped my father move into retirement eventually uh, because it hurts his profitability of his practice so much. And similarly, we find in South Africa now, pharma, independent pharmacists are under a lot of pressure because their revenues are down. But on the flip side... We can argue that drugs became cheaper for the consumer, for the public consumer. So that was one thing that was quite interesting. Now in South Africa, what is currently dominating the, the healthcare agenda is this concept of national health insurance, the NHI. And it has been approved, but we are figuring out how to implement it as a society over the next 10 years. And that is really about every citizen, private or public, contributing to a public fund that'll give the whole population access to the same healthcare system. And there's various pilots going on, of course, in principle, that should really improve the quality of care and the availability of care for the public, people who are not on privately insured. But there's huge concerns among the private sector of what's the impact of this going to be on private insurance and also how would the country be able to afford this given uh, the fact that countries like South Africa and other African countries have very constrained uh, fiscuses or country budgets. So... It's all about dealing with the resources and capacity, in my opinion. I think that's the great challenge uh, of our time. The other thing I would add is that because of this, there's a great deal of interest in treatments and technologies that can lower the cost of healthcare, such as telemedicine, such as online booking, things that reduce queuing, and, and just making the system more efficient because then the, the cost per case drops and you can also keep your population a little bit healthier as well. You mentioned that 9 million people have access to the private health sector. That's quite, I mean, in a way understandable, but that also means that 50 million people that are in South Africa basically are left in the public sector, right? Because there's 59 million people in South Africa. That's right. And when we say it's private, I would say also a lot of those people who are privately insured, a lot of them only have hospital coverage. So if something terrible happens, they're on a hospital plan. But their basic doctor checkups, dentistry, optometry, etc., they have to pay cash. So what does this plan for the national health insurance uh, predict? This was actually accepted by politicians? Yeah, it seems to have been. So it seems that this plan has been accepted by the ruling party. I, I believe it's less to go through certain other stages of approvals and commentary, but the Ministry of Health 
wants to forge ahead with it, there's still a lot of lack of clarity, mainly around how it's going to be funded. So funding can obviously change change everything because what the plan simply states is that the finance ministry has to find a way to come up with the money. And, and this can have great impacts on uh, the rollout. But I think that as a society in South Africa, they've pretty much expect things to, to, to happen and transpire. We're just not sure what the rollout schedule would be. So we're in a time of massive change and upheaval in the society because the system that's been in place for more than the last 20 years is now under, undergoing huge change. What's also very interesting about this plan is that it doesn't clarify what the role of private uh, health insurance is going to be. So it's not clear what will happen to the, the what we call medical aid schemes in South Africa. It's basically private healthcare insurance that services those 9 million people. So it, if you do some, some research, this is the, the topic that's on everyone's mind in South Africa right now in terms of what the impact to the taxpayer will be, what the impact to the public healthcare consumer will be, but also what the impact to all the business interests in the country will be. And, and I'm sure the impacts are going to be huge, but we also expect it to be rolled out slowly over time. What do you see the rollout will mean for Recomed? So Recomed is South Africa's largest and fastest growing online healthcare booking platform, which helps patients quickly find and make appointments with the healthcare providers that you mentioned. Currently today, Recomed has got significant traction in the private sector, but we have no bias or no preference in terms of what kind of practitioners use our platform. Ultimately, we help patients easily find a doctor and book the doctor or the clinic and leave a recommendation for other patients. So our platform totally eliminates queues and, and waiting times. And it also improves access because people can see exactly what kind of care is available in the area and they can book an appointment at night, for example, when the practice is closed. And we do currently do about 50,000 uh, appointments a month and this is growing very quickly. So we don't see why, given that we have the largest rollout base in South Africa in our market and we've got you know thousands of clinics and doctors on our platform it just makes sense that uh, as the NHI rolls out we'll be included in that process and we'll obviously hope to become a supplier to the government so that their clinics and doctors and patients in that system can can benefit from our platform uh, and we we feel you know confident that we'll be able to win those contracts eventually, just because we've done the hard work of creating a, a platform, not only that is easy to use, that people love, but it's also heavily integrated with other healthcare management systems and uh, products in the market. So that's very, very difficult to, to replicate from scratch for any new uh, market entrance. Uh, given that one of your previous companies was a global company. Are you also eyeing other African countries to spread recommend to? Yeah, absolutely. So I think healthcare is a local business. This is why we often see regional market leaders emerge all over the world doing similar things. There's often regional telemedicine companies and regional marketplace booking companies. And we notice this consistently which is different to other sectors like hospitality, where there's more globalized players. And I believe that that's because healthcare is quite local and every local environment is different. And it's back to the complexity and the time issue that we spoke about at the beginning of our discussion. We definitely plan to consolidate 
our dominance in the South African market and grow to as many doctors and patients as possible with as many integrations as possible and, and partner with the big private sector players as well as with the government. So that's the goal in South Africa. But certainly we think that we've learned enough about how to do this in Africa because in Africa the internet may not work properly at, at the doctor's office and the patient may not have access to the same level of technology and we may need a call center to follow up with people. There's a lot of things that we change about how the product platform works in Africa versus how it may work in the United States or in France or Australia. So with all those changes, we know we've got a system that can work in emerging markets. So yes, the, the short answer is we will be doing a fundraise in the not too distant future and that fundraise will enable us to expand to other African markets, you know, such as Kenya, Nigeria and, and other large markets that we find interesting. You mentioned that the technology requirements are different here than in other countries. So through which means, apart from the website, can patients find doctors on your platform? Is it also the regular mobile phones through uh, SMS systems? It's, that's a very interesting piece of our platform. So the patient can go onto a website and book an appointment. They also, in some cases, will be engaging with apps that their health insurance gives them. And those apps are often integrated with Recommend, so that can work as well. If they're using a non-smartphone, a feature phone, there's a version of Recommend that will automatically load on those sites and they can book an appointment there. And in some cases, we have partners who actually run call centers. And what these call centers do is they call the patient. The patient answers their phone, and while they're on the phone, the call center agent uses Recommend to book an appointment for that patient. Because obviously that organization has an interest in this particular patient getting a certain kind of test done. It's called managed care, for example, where it, it could be a certain sick patient or it could be a type of insurance patient who needs to get an annual medical done or something like that. So these call centers are actually using the Recommend platform and they're making the outbound calls to the patient. So that's all, all the different ways you can book an appointment. Another way you can do it is... A, but while 80% of our appointments are, are real-time and confirmed instantly, about 20%, the patient leaves a request with the provider, and the provider meaning the doctor, and the doctor then gets back to the patient within a certain time frame. So let me switch over and explain the complexity of how we deal with the doctor side of it. A doctor is on recommend, and a patient wants to book with them. First case is that the patient books online, and it's instantly confirmed, and that appointment is instantly populated into the doctor's healthcare practice management system. So that's electronic integration, completely instant. That's sort of the first example. The second example is that the doctor uses an online version of Recommend, which has an online calendar similar to Google Calendar, and they can accept through that interface and not through an integration. They can also do this via a mobile. If for whatever reason the doctor or the receptionist have no access to uh, these uh, smartphones or tablets or a computer in the in the practice. We or, or lost, forgot the username and password. We actually send them an SMS and an email as well, and they can respond to the appointment and accept it via SMS or email. If none of those things happen, let's say that the practice completely forgot or has no access to technology, Recommit's call center will phone the practice in an, within an hour and actually say, we have a patient that wants to book an appointment and resolve it manually. And if we can't get hold of the practice, we then automatically expire the appointment 
we inform the patient that the practice didn't get back to us. And if that happens three times, we take the doctor off the platform and we punish them and help them improve their behavior before we let them back on the platform. So that's about eight different ways that a practice can respond to a patient request via recommit. And it kind of shows all the different safety nets and things we've had to learn. Because if you just release tech in the African market and expect everybody to use it without any hand-holding, I think you, you've got a recipe for failure. So that's an insight into how we have achieved our scale. Do you have any statistics that you can share, for example, how many appointments are made daily, perhaps what kind of specialists are most sought after? Absolutely. So we, we see more than 1,500 appointments made every day. And I would say that what we find is most in demand. It changes based on certain areas. General practitioners see very, very high volumes of doctors. We find that women are often searching for female practitioners. That seems to be a, quite a common trend, and they can notice that from the site. So that's something we didn't expect. We find that gynecologists are in extremely high demand, and then pediatricians, and finally dermatologists. And that could be because there's just not a lot of availability of these kinds of specialists in the healthcare system. So those are some very common things we see. We also notice that in winter, there's a much higher spike in doctor visits than in than they are in summer. So now we, we kind of see the volume stabilize, which is summer in South Africa. But in winter, which is around May and June, there's a, there's a gigantic spike in volume. So, And what's also uh, really fascinating is we can see different behavior inland to the coast in terms of things like flu appointments. So we're, we're hoping uh, in time to share some of this data with, uh, with the market, uh, market research bodies, media, etc. Obviously, anonymize, but uh, share some of the insights we see from all this activity on up. That's exactly what I was thinking. That data has a huge potential for public health policies. I really think so. And if I think about the amount of appointments that we store in our system. We also synchronize a lot of appointments that don't happen online in our platform. So a lot of the offline appointments that practices see still get synchronized through integrations into our cloud. So we process several million appointments per year and we know a lot about what's going on. So obviously this all needs to be stored very, very securely and in a very uh, HIPAA-compliant manner. But once you've done that, and once you've anonymized the data, there is uh, fascinating applications that you can do with it. What kind of other applications or digital health startups do you know from South Africa? Every continent has its own specifics and needs in terms of healthcare, digital health solutions. I think there are some global themes in healthcare that are applicable everywhere and then perhaps some local ones. So what we find is uh, popular in South Africa is certainly I'm seeing a wave of telemedicine companies, particularly video telemedicine, getting traction now. So that's That's a key category. There are uh, electronic medical records and let's call it healthcare in practice management systems are, are quite popular. And those obviously will be localized for each specific market. Another space that we've seen some companies doing quite well in is in the idea of doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication. So secure healthcare communication between practitioners. But think of it almost like a WhatsApp type platform, but customized for medical usage. That's another trend that we're seeing occur. And then there's everything around getting your medication. There's companies that are doing very innovative sort of 
pillbox ATMs where people can get a code and go to this kind of ATM in a rural village or a, a small town and type in their code and their medication pops out to them as a more efficient way than waiting hours and hours in a queue at a clinic to get their medication. And on the flip side, on the other hand, I know another company that's got uh, delivery people in bicycles going into a uh, townships and villages to, to do the last mile of, of medicine delivery. So there's some interesting global trends such as telemedicine that are, that are huge. But then there's also some very local types of trends such as last mile delivery of medication that's very popular in this market. Uh, two startups that kind of caught my eye were also Science Support, which is a mobile app facilitating medicine instructions and healthcare informations between a pharmacist and a patient who speak different languages uh, and wouldn't be able to communicate otherwise. Or Xfarm, uh, which is a mobile and web-based platform that facilitates pharmacies to sell their soon-to-expire or overstocked products. I thought that was like super interesting because medical supplies and The counterfeit medicine are quite challenged in Africa. Yes, both of those sound sound great. Uh, definitely in terms of clinical support tools, that seems to be popular as well, where doctors can quickly look up a medication or a particular healthcare protocol on their phone or on the tablet instead of paging through books because of the high volumes and the need for speed. So There's a lot of really interesting interesting applications. And, and the nice thing about health tech is that there's just such potential for high scale. And if anything works, it immediately changes lives. So it's very, very motivating to see these companies get traction. And I think we're going to see a lot more innovation. What's also quite exciting to me is, and I have to wonder, is how much of this African innovation will become popular elsewhere in the world? Because innovation is often created by constraints. And we have a number of interesting constraints to deal with in Africa, but then there's also in healthcare still a good market size. You can still attract very intelligent and motivated entrepreneurs. And there's a big uh, commercial opportunity for these companies. So I, I find all these constraints creating some very interesting companies. And I look forward to seeing them globalize uh, beyond Africa in the future. How much interest do you see from other countries or startups from other countries like Asia or the US or Europe entering uh, at the African market? Because apart from the local specifics, uh, the other things that needs to be taken into account is also that the prices need to be much lower for the market in Africa. So I'm curious how much interest is there for competitors outside of your home country? I think that most companies look at Africa as a future growth market. So what they will do, if they're on an international growth strategy, they'll look to allocate a percentage of that to Africa. I think it's clear that the volumes and the revenues in Asia, emerge, Asian emerging, emerging markets are, are going to be greater than in African emerging markets. But that may not necessarily be the case 10 to 20 years from now. So we notice, for example, a lot of Japanese healthcare companies looking to Africa. I mean, our, our most recent investor was a Japanese venture capital fund with limited partners that are very, very interested in African healthcare opportunities over the long term. So we're definitely seeing uh, Asian interest. The same is happening for China into Africa as well. So a lot of global companies that are looking for market expansion. And uh, another example is Sanofi is very active in African markets. They've got accelerators in South Africa. Merck is another one. So French and German companies certainly uh, also have strong ties to Africa and look at the market. But yeah, I agree. They would need to look at the pricing. 
And they are obviously still interested in moving volume. So I suppose um, to ignore Africa would probably be a mistake because of the rate and the speed that Africa's population and markets are growing at. But they'll allocate a, a percentage of their focus to it. And we are seeing on the ground many, many more global companies setting up accelerators, incubators, startup competitions, and just searching for innovative companies that they can use internally and potentially globalize as well. What are your experiences with looking for an investment in South Africa compared to the US, given that you had a previous business there? First of all, we all know that you know, if Silicon Valley is, is the sun of the solar system of venture capital, then perhaps uh, you know, Seattle is a planet and New York is another planet. And we can say London is another planet and Cape Town is, is some space dust far away, <laughs> orbiting uh, very far out. So by size, uh, in terms of dollar allocations, you know, I think last year was the first year that over a billion dollars was actually injected into venture capital, which is really a drop in the ocean by US standards. So with that in mind, as an entrepreneur with a health tech company, What's it like to raise funding? I would say it's reasonably easy, actually. And I say this because if you have a good innovation, health tech is a very exciting sector for venture capital to follow. It's, it's actually probably the most exciting sector after fintech. And fintech raises about 40% of all the VC in Africa, if not more than that, probably between 40 and 60%. Uh, financial inclusion, of course, being, being a big topic and uh, showing a lot of return. The next big frontier really is health, health tech. So almost every fund is interested in this. They're all obviously interested in uh, the life-changing applications, the ability to have uh, developmental outcomes on society. So while there's fewer funds with less money, I've been doing this for 15 years and there's 10 times as many funds today as there were 10 years ago, if not 100 times as many. So there's far more capital in the market now than a decade ago. And that capital that does exist is likely to look at health tech quite seriously. But do you have a sense that investors understand the difference in healthcare, meaning that it will take a lot longer for returns to, to happen compared to other industries? I'm trying to be part of that education process. So let me give the, the negative view. So while I think the first raise is, is quite easy, what about the second, third, fourth, fifth races that the companies need to go through. And I think that there is difficulty there because there's obviously going to be fatigue and, and loss of confidence or loss of patience if the investors don't understand the length of the journey. And, and it's also worth noting that a lot of the entrepreneurs entering health tech are first timers, whether they're doctors or, or, or techies like me, they're probably first time entrepreneurs in the space and have a lot of lessons to learn. I think education is going to be important. The reality is, yes, 75% of the companies are probably not going to make it through the funding cycle. And that's just, I think, the reality of what we're dealing with. It's a common reality in startups, especially in healthcare, I'd say. So I think that is the venture capital reality. What kind of competitors does Recomed have? How do you differentiate? Any good company is going to have numerous competitors. So we have plenty of companies that are trying to do two things. One is they're trying to provide online booking to doctors and clinics. And we understand that over a long enough time horizon, online booking will become commoditized. And the second is then there's competitors trying to build competing marketplaces, which is a marketplace is thousands of doctors and clinics on a single platform with millions of patients looking for them. 
That is very, very difficult to replicate because of the network effect of marketplaces. So we see this with, with Airbnb and with Uber and Booking.com. Once you've built a marketplace that has traction, the network effect of those consumers looking for service providers and the way they interact with each other creates dynamics that are very, very difficult for new competitors to replicate. So there's a number of providers of online booking software in the market, but there is no provider that's even within 10% or 5% of our scale as a networked marketplace. That's the, the one point that's... So, so we would imagine that our growth will exceed the growth of any new market entrant. And this is why marketplaces tend to have a single leader with over 90% market share over time. These companies are also very expensive to, to fund and to get difficult to make, to get traction for, but we're solving those challenges. The second piece that's very difficult for competitors to replicate is that Recommit is highly integrated into the healthcare ecosystem. So we have integrated with numerous healthcare insurance companies where we white label our technology for their use. And that's on the patient or consumer side of our platform. We've also integrated with about 80% of the healthcare practice management systems that doctors and clinics use in the country, which is on the supply side. And what that results in is that Recommit is a single platform that's a consolidated platform that ties together many of the different fragments of clinics and doctors and softwares in the market, as well as the different groups of patients and insurers that drive their behavior. So, you know, why are we here and, and no, no one else is? I, I would say in our six-year journey, maybe we've had to fend off anywhere from 10 to 20 good competitors. And uh, those competitors have pretty much failed due to the challenges of keeping your business funded, getting traction, being patient, etc. And this includes competition from corporates who have now become our partners as well. So not saying it was easy. It was certainly difficult, but we hope uh, it'll be rewarding in the future. Can patients leave reviews of the providers that they visited through your platform? So we're very clever, or shall I say careful, in how we manage that. We found that if we allowed patients to leave open reviews, doctors would get worried and not want to sign up with us. So we actually then realized that if we called it a recommendation, and we made it clear to the patient that this is a recommendation and not a review, we made it clear to the doctor that really we publish positive recommendations. And if the doctor gets bad feedback, we send it to the doctor privately. Well, then everybody's sort of won. Um, what we found is we did some testing and we found that profiles with these positive recommendations got more bookings and were, patients were still happier with those profiles than profiles with no patient feedback whatsoever. So we don't allow open reviews. We allow positive recommendations. And maybe one day in the future when our... Doctor customers are braver and more willing to allow open feedback, then we can uh, open up the feedback to, to reviews by patients. But you know, I actually think that's brilliant because a negative review can have a huge impact on the doctor's practice just because one patient was a demanding case from the medical perspective and healthcare and medicine are so complex that it can easily happen that, you know, two doctors will have a different opinion on what would have to be done with a specific patient. Yeah, well, what's, what I find is interesting, we have to be so careful around what this concept of a good doctor is. And I'll give you three examples. Let's talk about the patient. Let's talk about the doctor association, the membership association. Let's talk about the health insurer. 
And, and let's, let's ask ourselves, what is a good doctor between those three entities? Well, for the patient, a good doctor might be somebody who gave them the prescription that they wanted for their sleeping tablets or their birth control or, you know, painkillers or whatever. That's what a good doctor is. He's very nice to me and, and he gave or she gave me the tablets I was looking for. Now, for the doctor association or industry body, they may see a good doctor as a doctor who had the highest clinical outcomes for their patient. So for them, the doctor who gives tablets that the patients don't need is very bad. But the one who makes the patients healthy is the best. Now for the health insurance company, to use the third example, their definition of a good doctor is a doctor who operates within the pricing guidelines that they've established and doesn't overcharge patients. So a good doctor is one who has very good financial behavior and the patients still get healthy. And those are three completely different judgment criteria. So as recommend, what's fascinating for us is all three of those organizations have an interest in our data, but we have to be very careful around how we go about rating doctors and saying who's good and who's not good. Recommend is actually already your third company. Can you tell me, do you find healthcare more demanding than other industries? That's something that we often hear from entrepreneurs. Yes, Recommend is my, my third company that's raised venture capital funding. And I can definitely say, and, and of this, we've also I've been involved in a number of other ventures in different sectors. I do think so. I think that healthcare is more complex and slower than other sectors. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I think that the one reason is that by its very nature, the healthcare system is quite complicated. There's a lot of moving parts between patients, payers or funders, providers, the doctors, the healthcare management systems that are in use and the various rules around insurance or cash payments. So there's inherent complexity in healthcare. That's the one issue I see. The second issue I see in healthcare, and this is me coming as an outsider who got traction in many other sectors. The, the second issue I think is that in general, the executives were often doctors and there's more of a, a focus on clinical excellence than necessarily business excellence or speed. So that's a second impediment to technology entrepreneurs who are trying to champion innovation and new ways of doing things. That makes change very, very slow in this sector. So the complexity mixed with the, the people working inside it. And I think that if we had to estimate what this, the cost of this is, I would estimate that health tech is three to five times longer in terms of the time to get the traction and hit your milestones. And I think it's also going to be, therefore, for that reason, three to five times more expensive to achieve the same milestones as you would with another startup. I think that the flip side is that the market size is probably 20x bigger than a, a market in another industry. The market is definitely massive with massive volume, but it takes longer and requires more funding to penetrate, for sure. And it was, it was actually very surprising for me and we missed all our targets and uh, we eventually got it right. But it took a few years longer than I expected. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Do leave a rating or a review of the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you wish to learn more about the show, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Stay tuned.